trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, and LifesavingFood.com. Of course, there are links to each of these sponsors in today's show notes, which you'll find at thebrianheidshow.com. I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. I have, uh, I've known this guy for quite a few years. In fact, I'm trying to think back. I'm guessing at least 12, maybe 13 years. I want to welcome Jared Sorensen. He is a rancher from Nevada, but he's a whole lot more than that. In fact, Jared, I'm going to first of all say welcome to the show, but I'm going to also ask you, for the sake of people meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do. Awesome. Thank you, Brian. It's it's the privilege to be on your show. Um, yeah, I think it's been at least 15 years ago when we um, crossed paths, maybe when we were back studying freedom uh, principles and uh, getting a liberal arts education. So who am I? I'm, I'm a husband. I'm a father. Um, we've got my wife and I've been married for 25 years. We've got nine children. We welcomed our first grandchild into the family this hey, last hey. year. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. Are you a grandpa yet? I am. Yeah. I'm still uh, kind of, yeah. I only have two grandkids, but uh, that's, a, that's a nice milestone to hit. It is. It is. I don't feel old enough yet to be a grandpa, but um as you mentioned, we're ranchers. I'm a third-generation rancher on our family's ranch. We live in a little community, Ruby Valley, Nevada. Um, it's, uh, it's largely just a ranching community. It's a big valley, and um, it's where my grandfather and then my father settled here, moved here from southern Utah, and uh, just feel really blessed to live on the land. Um, property rights are near and dear to our hearts. It's something that my dad and grandfather believed in. And uh, we're doing our best to to make sure that the fourth generation has the opportunity to carry on this legacy. They so choose. And I, I have to, I just want to brag on you a little bit. So you're going to have to turn your modesty off for a second here, Jared. But I was always very impressed with Jared and his family as we would encounter each other over the years. Um, just a wonderful family. Talk about a can-do kind of guy. And, and he's raised his kids to be this way. And I'm just, I, I'm so grateful to see you using that liberal arts education you referred to uh, um, just a few moments ago. Uh, you have taken it. Some people may think, well, what does ranching and liberal arts have to do with one another? And I, I want to yeah. ask you, can you connect those dots for us? How has having a liberal arts education and being a more well-rounded individual helped you as a third-generation rancher? Oh, that's an excellent question. Some days I really wonder that also. It seems like these passions that I have are so disconnected. Um, but I, I take a lot on faith that, um, you know, my maker who created me and has endowed me with these, with these passions, one for regenerative agriculture, another for liberal arts and for freedom, for faith and for family. Um, those are kind of my core. It's, it's kind of these core principles that I believe in and that I teach about and uh, try to exemplify. So how do they connect? Well, personal with the other, the other one is personal integrity. So those are kind of my four faith, faith, freedom, family, personal integrity, and regenerative agriculture would be the five things that I, that I believe in that I teach about are kind of my core. 
Um, so when I started into a liberal arts education, I, I really didn't see how they connected. I just knew I needed to get an education. And I read a great book by one of our friends, Oliver DeMille, and it talked about this Thomas Jefferson leadership education. And I thought, you know, I had gone to school. Um, I'd homeschooled. I went to a few years of college and, uh, and I just didn't see the value in getting a degree. But when I read that book, I thought, that's the kind of education that I need. And he talked about being a statesman. And I had no idea what a statesman was. I had no idea what a liberal arts education was. I thought, man, I'm not a liberal. I'm a conservative. And I came to realize that liberal is a lot more meaningful than that. It comes from the root word, as you know, and probably teach, liber. And, uh, and it embodies freedom. It embodies the, the, the ability to think for yourself. And, um, and so as I've gone along, I've realized that they truly, they're, they're, not, they're not separate missions, that they are connected, that my passion for agriculture and the passion that the Founding Fathers of America, many of them shared in agriculture, they absolutely connect to freedom. In the world we live in, they seem very disconnected, right? I mean, we're a minority here uh, working in agriculture. I mean, less than 1% of us are directly involved in agriculture, but yet the role we play is super important, not only for America, but also for the world, providing food and fiber for our fellow man. So uh, my hope is that as, as people begin to understand that, they'll realize that, hey, there, there is this connection. We need to support agriculture. Not that you have to go and become a rancher, but learn about it. Teach your kids about it. Come on field trips. Learn what it means, what true natural law means, the laws of the harvest. And those things that you, you know, they're hard to teach conceptually, but you can go and plant a seed and you can water it and you can watch it grow. Jared, if, if nothing else, I, I think it would be immensely helpful for people to understand where the food on their plate actually comes from. Um, that's something you're very intimately acquainted with because you're a part of that process. You're a part of bringing, you know, food to, to their table. But for, for most of us, I mean, we, we go to the grocery store and, you know, interestingly enough, we see empty shelves now more and more. And I think people are about to get an education in how that supply chain works. But there's something very useful and, and very um, noble that occurs when a person understands, you know, how you can be part of the cooperative arts, you know, with and, and I, I would include agriculture as, as one of those where basically you work with nature, you work with God, and in the end, it benefits people, not just you, but, you know, the people who, who buy the cattle, who buy the, the crops and so forth. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm glad you draw that connection that, you know, the, the kind of the joke is, is people just expect that food just magically appears on grocery store shelves. And certainly through this pandemic, we've realized that there are, there are holes in the system, right? Um, we're, we, we're very vulnerable, even in the United States, we produce a ton of food but the distribution system is not flawless. Um, so what do we do to overcome that? And I mean, that's kind of can be its own show in and of itself, but in a nutshell, basically it would be come to know, come to know people that are actually growing food when things get tough. I mean, it was a shame that at the beginning of the pandemic, all the food that went to waste, right? The euthanization of livestock and that that's just criminal. Why in the world are we doing that? Well, it's because we didn't have a system to be able to distribute that food when the restaurants closed and things. And so, um, but if you, if you have a relationship with your local, local meaning, you know, who's our, we live in the middle of nowhere, but I consider the Wasatch Front, I consider um, the cities of Elko, Twin Falls, they're, they're our neighbors, essentially. I mean, you can drive here and get back home in a morning, really in half a day or less. True. Um, 
you can come out and get food. You know, we'll, we'll exchange when things get tough. You may be, you might have the skill of plumbing. We've got the skill of growing food and we can, you know, we can, we can, we can bypass this broken system. <laughs> I, I like this. I know some people are like, okay, guys, you're making me a little uncomfortable here, but no, this, this is the thing I love. It's, it's about solving problems and, and not being dependent upon, well, what we got to do now is elect somebody to start a committee to start looking into the problem. And, you know, government solutions tend to bring a lot of unwanted baggage with them. And uh, I, I just, I love that you're very consistent in your message of, of uh, not just personal freedom, but freedom that's based in the right things. I mean, you, you mentioned family and uh, it's, I can see it's important to you. You were raised as a rancher and this is a heritage that uh, you don't feel, you don't have to hang your head like, Oh, you know, some environmental groups uh, really look down. The ranchers are destroying the American West. And you know, anybody who knows you or knows what you, what you do would say that that's not possible because you depend on that land. You depend on that forage to, to, to keep things going for, for the upcoming generations. That's the idea, Brian. Absolutely. Um, and there's a movement. If you, you know, if your listeners haven't heard of regenerative agriculture, it's kind of a buzzword. Um, you know, there's a lot of labels that you can get on your food, organic, natural, gluten-free, whatever. But, um, but we've actually partnered with the Savory Institute and we are producing grass fed beef that now has that regenerative label on it. And so study about what that is. And again, that's probably a whole nother, a whole nother topic. Okay. We got about one minute before we have to go to break. Um, this may be a conversation that the regenerative agriculture, we may have to come back to that another time on the other side of the break though. I want my listeners to know you recently published a book, actually just March of this year. And yep. there's, there's a story behind the story in this book and we're going to touch on that, learn a little bit about why you wrote it, what you hope for it to accomplish. Before we go to break, though, Jared, is there a website where people can go to learn more about what you are doing or even learn more about your book? You bet. So the, the best website right now is our grass-fed beef website, rubymountainfoods.com. You can connect with us personally through that. Uh, my Facebook page, jaredesorenson.com, and then we'll tell you how to order the book later. Okay, so I'm talking with Jared Sorensen. We will be back just the other side of these commercial messages. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. My guest is Jared Sorensen. He is a third-generation rancher from northern Nevada. And, Jared, I have to say, I've driven through uh, Ruby Valley many, many times. Some people think of Nevada and they think, oh, it's a sagebrush. There's nothing to see outside of, you know, Vegas or one of the bigger cities. That Ruby Valley area is absolutely beautiful, almost to the point where I'm like, wow, this we're still in Nevada, right? I mean, it is gorgeous. Yeah. Hey, maybe you better edit that segment out. Why Don't let the, the world know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what Nevada really looks like. No, it's ugly. Did I say Just it was keep beautiful? Driving. Yeah. <laughs> it's horrible. Nothing but no, lava rocks. It is. <laughs> it is a little piece of heaven. We're very blessed to live where we do. Well, uh, tell me about the book that you have written. And uh, first of all, what, uh, what sparked 
the interest? Why, why did you feel that there was a book to be written? Yeah, great question. So we have a mutual friend, Shannon Brooks. I know Monticello College is a sponsor to your show. Um, I, I admire Shannon. He's, uh, he's gifted. And I, I wanted to learn to write more persuasively. So I, I thought of all the people that I could reach out to to be a writing mentor and Shannon came to mind and he's at first, you know, he says, no, I'm not your man, you know, go try this guy or try this guy. And I said, no, I, I know you're the man. And so uh, we started working. I would turn in weekly submissions and he would review them and he kept pushing me and pushing me to write more for my heart and less for my head. And so as I started to do that, he didn't tell me what I was doing, you know, like most mentors don't, it's like wax on wax off all these things that you just <laughs> like, I don't understand this. I just, just, you're supposed to be helping me to write. But as he pushed me, then finally I just started writing about this story. And um, I had no idea that it was going to turn into a book. And when he read the first chapter, he's like, Jared, that's, that's your voice. You take that. I don't know where it came from. You take that, you expand on that and you run with that. So thanks to Shannon and the support of my wife, and my kids listening to the different versions of the book being read to them. Um, my mother who's now passed away, but I think she helped me a lot on both sides of the veil to get the book done. Um, the book came to life, like you mentioned in March of, of this year. Okay. So tell us a little bit, first of all, the book is called searching for home, finding grace. Yes. Give us, give us a little bit of a, a hint about the, the story that, that is portrayed here. Right. So it, um, it's a fictional story, uh, but it's all the major events in the book are based on things that have either happened to me, my family members, or people who have come to work for us. And uh, definitely truth is stranger than fiction. Um, turns out that a, a young man uh, kind of going through a midlife crisis finds himself on a ranch in Nevada. And so it's told from his perspective, from somebody who doesn't know anything about agriculture, doesn't know anything about ranching. And he comes and he lands on this ranch with his wonderful family and they take him in and they uh, hire him to work there. But he becomes a mentor or a mentee of the ranch owner. So through that process, he learns not only the principles of ranching, but the principles of being a man, of living a life of integrity, of, uh, of owning up to the past mistakes that you have, of seeking for and granting forgiveness and many of the other life principles that um, that I've kind of taken for granted that that you know are just kind of inherited, but I'm realizing that not everybody knows those things, just like this young man didn't know it. And so it um, that's the essence of the story and just his journey as he works for this works for this family. There's a little bit of romance in there that wasn't intended when I started the book. Um, this character shows up out of nowhere and she wants to be in the book. And uh, she kind of struggles with me as the writer. And uh, anyway, she weasels away into the book. And, and so it, it adds a lot of, I guess a lot of emotion to that as, as he works through his challenges specifically of getting, of being forgiven. So finding grace is not only, it's not only the, uh, it's not only the character's name, but it's also, you know, a double meaning there of, of how the main character, Sam, finds grace. Jared, what do you want to see happen when a person reads this book? Once they, once they have been taken completely through this story, what are you hoping that, how are you hoping this book will impact them? Well, I've gotten some good reviews. Um, you know, my target audience is, is 
middle-aged man, it, it was like who this, the character of the book and, and myself as I started writing the book. But uh, my niece, who's 16, year old, 16 years old, gave me a great review. And, um, and she mentioned some things that are really meaningful. She said, when, when the character in the book did this, when he was, you know, out in the forest and he just kind of lets it all out and has it out with God right there. And, um, you know, it basically just starts out blaming. And then he comes to the point where he feels, he feels that he's been forgiven and he feels that peace maybe for the first time in his adult life. She said, I can do that too. And so that's what I hope for the readers is that they have that sense of hope and the courage to, to push through whatever, whatever life has dealt to them, whatever bad decisions they may have made, that there is hope, there is grace, there is purpose in all of it. And, uh, and so, yeah, that's first and foremost, there's a lot of other principles, but I mean, if they can take away that one thing and have a little glimmer of hope after reading the book, man, it will have been a success. Okay, now I'm going to ask you once again, for people who, who are saying, okay, this sounds like a story I would be very interested in, in reading for myself, where can they find this? I think it's on Amazon, correct? Yep, that's the best place to, place to purchase the book. Just look for Jared E. Sorensen or Searching for Home Finding Grace. Um, so jump on there. We are building a website right now. Um, Facebook would be the other way to engage with me. I have an author page on there. And try to post regularly um, just to carry on conversations with potential readers. And uh, hopefully we'll have a a website up soon, and I'll link that to the Facebook page. So Amazon, Facebook, and then our grass-fed beef page uh, or website would be the other way. So Okay, I will will put links in the show notes, which I... I published with every episode that we do uh, so that, uh, that our listeners can can check this out for themselves, um, especially I'll have the Amazon link too. Um, Jared, okay, we, we've, got, we've got just a couple minutes here. Um, I'm not asking you to solve the world's problems, but you're a guy whose point of view I, I trust. I think you have, um, I think you have perceptive, you know, I think you see the world through, through honest and eyes that, uh, that are backed by a personal integrity. How are you feeling as you're watching things unfolding? Give me your best take on the the scenario that's playing out in front of us. Yeah, that's – geez, you're going to push me there. Um, I appreciate listening to your show, and I appreciate your stance for freedom. Uh, boy, there's been – there has sure been a real push towards socialism. And I'll just call it for what it is. I mean, people need to understand what socialism actually is. It's the opposite – of the foundation that our founding fathers set up for our country. It's not popular to say that, but uh, we need to, we need to distinguish between truth and error. And I believe that we've taken some giant steps in the wrong direction as a society. I'm not pointing the finger blame at anybody. And when did that actually happen? You know, we're probably reaping the seeds that have been planted years ago. Um, it didn't just happen with this current president or past president or because of the pandemic. It's just these things like this and people like this are opportunistic. And so it's going to happen. What do we need to combat that? I think is the biggest thing. And if I could just say that, you know, look at the title of this book, it's finding grace. That's if we can have grace for ourselves, grace for our neighbors, grace for those who have differences of opinion than we do then we're going to be okay. 
you know, we maybe lose loved ones. Maybe we lose our own life to this virus or something else, but we're going to be okay. There is too much division in the world right now. Even in our own little community, we're not immune from it. There's mask wearers and anti-mask wearers and vaxxers and anti-vaxxers. And, and, you know, and, and I mean, we live in the middle of nowhere and there's still, we're not immune from that. So grace and love and a big dose of humility, Brian. Yeah. And, and, and something that's coming through loud and clear, you start fixing the world by fixing yourself, right? <laughs> Get yourself yeah. in order and watch how other things fall into place. Jared well, Swenson, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me on the show today. Brian, thank you. Thank you. I applaud what you do. God bless you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. You've heard me talk about them. Look, the, the down and dirty details are these. They are a food storage company. Lifesavingfood.com is all about uh, getting you in a more self-sufficient position. You may already have a food storage program. Maybe you're somebody who's looking around you going, you know, things are, things are getting a little bit sketchy on a lot of different fronts. Maybe it would be in my interest to have a little bit of food set aside for a rainy day. Well, this is the kind of stuff that you want to look at and, uh, and act on sooner rather than later. 25-year shelf life, delicious foods, all kinds of different uh, quantities and different uh, entrees that you can choose from. Look, if you're looking for simple survival kits, like 72-hour kits, or even uh, they have a hunting bucket, which is a wonderful thing you could take along on the deer hunt. Uh, you know, this makes sense. Long-term food storage Looking for a whole program? Yeah, they've got it. Looking to just add a few things here and there in your existing food storage program? Absolutely. But the time to act is now, while there's still plenty of stocks available, while the price is good, and of course you may want to take advantage of that 20% discount that Life Saving Food is offering to my listeners. All you have to do is enter the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout. You can find the link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. So let's take a moment here to uh, talk about how people are reaching the limits of their patience with government demands. Got an article here from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute that uh, wonders if maybe there is a breaking point at hand in American society. In fact, he asks if we're he asks if we're seeing the possibility of a general strike. Jeffrey Tucker does a remarkable job of summing up what's unfolding right in front of us. He says, never in our lifetimes has a federal mandate created such cultural and economic havoc. And he wonders, does the Biden administration, do they really imagine that it could force its way outright into the bloodstream of every American simply by demanding it in a press conference? I think that may be the best way that I've, I've heard these, uh, these mandates summed up. Jeffrey Tucker says, talk about the personalization of compulsion. He says, people take their health seriously, especially when it involves the coercive injection of a tax-funded substance about which the people know next to nothing and which has not been shown to prevent or even reduce the infection or spread of a virus it was advertised to stop. 
Now, he says, doubt is when the inevitable result of exaggerated promises and, uh, and under, or he says it's the under... Let's try that again. Doubt is the inevitable result of, un, of exaggerated promises and underperforming results. Resentment is what you breed when you smother those doubts under threats of fines and firings. And the timing can't be worse. The jobs report was grim. Inflation is outpacing wage increases. It's understandable why American workers are feeling caged in on all sides with mask and jab mandates. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, like lockdowns, the vaccine mandate utterly fails to account for risk levels and demographic heterogeneity for a virus that impacts people based strongly on age and health. The mandate treats everyone within a geographic jurisdiction as an identical collective, whereas people think and act only as individuals, especially when it comes to medical and health matters. Jeffrey Tucker says the denial of infection-acquired immunity is especially cruel because it's exploitative of, exploitative of the very people who were on the front lines during this whole pandemic period, the ones who took the greatest risks and now are told they are expendable unless they comply even more. He talks about his inbox being flooded with personal stories of heartbreak and panic, how, like, for instance, members of the military who know for certain of their infection-acquired immunity, yet they're facing discharge. Teachers who are terrified for their livelihoods, tech workers who are trying to figure out the means of getting around the rules, parents who are sick of forcing masks on the kids or are now nervous about shots for the kids and so on. As for those who have given into the vaccine mandate and gotten the jab against their will, well, Jeffrey Tucker says these are the folks that are seething in anger. But he also points out this is more than just passive complaining. More and more, these people are starting to find each other. They're coming together despite so many attempts to keep people apart and censor accounts. And they're starting to act. In fact, he says it feels like the birth of a general strike. Now, that's a phrase that's pertained mostly to socialist or anti-capitalist movements in the past. But he says this time it's different. Because this isn't happening for a socialist revolution as the fevered imaginations of communism once predicted, nor by the owners of capital on behalf of their rights as Ayn Rand cleverly reconstructed the old Hegelian forecast. Instead, he says it's by the lockdown-abused workers, nurses, pilots, air traffic controllers, mechanics, teachers, city and federal employees, technicians of all types, on behalf of their bodily autonomy, and their freedom to choose. And he says it's also occurring unofficially and surreptitiously. And and I thought this was interesting. Southwest Airlines never admitted the real reason for the cancellation of flights over this last weekend, even though everyone in the company knew why it was happening. Strangely, the labor unions didn't admit it either because they knew that the secretly, the secretly organized sick-out would be deemed illegal according to their union rules. So instead, we have this bizarre situation in which no official organ could admit to what everybody already knew. He says when there's such a vast gulf between what everybody knows and what nobody publicly admits, that suggests a growing crisis. Add to that the mysterious cancellations, absenteeism, 
declining presidential poll numbers, plus an intensifying problem with inflation, ever less trust in official pronouncements, winter is on the way with a shortage in heating oil. He says, you have the makings of an epic change of some sort. Now, what it amounts to depends very much on the philosophical convictions of the public, which are right now being trained in a direction to fight for rights rather than to blindly obey. And I like how he sums this up. He says, in the spring of 2020, a swath of the ruling class attempted a radical economic and legal reconstruction of the social order to deal with a pathogen based entirely on models of their own creation. And when it flopped, they doubled down, rewarding big tech and big pharma at the expense of everyone else. And when, when that happened, they tightened their controls on the population, but it's not unfolding the way they imagined. So I've got a link to this article in the show notes. There's much more to it, but I, I want you to, to consider what he's saying here. One of the toughest things to, to get our minds around is, first of all, the fact that the resentment out there against mandates is real and it's growing. This is not just people on the fringes. In fact, Tucker says this is a blowback beyond anything I could have imagined a year ago. And there's also the fact that tragically roped into the cabal of bad guys, here's big tech. It long ago enlisted itself in the machinery of lockdowns and mandates, using every means in its information arsenal to silence dissent. And the resentment over that censorship is also starting to boil over. Now, he's, he's a little bit concerned here because <clears throat> the danger is that uh, this, this discontent could be turned against capitalism itself. And he says, you know, people think capitalism is something that it isn't. They associate capitalism with the richest companies, with billionaires, and what the billionaires think and do. That's not correct. In fact, he says, my preferred definition of capitalism would go something like this. Capitalism is an economic environment that protects and celebrates the right of voluntary exchange and accumulation of private property by all people, according to their own lights, so far as they do not engage in force or fraud, leading to the meritorious construction of complex production structures. That's a pretty detailed definition, and Jeffrey Tucker says it's too geeky and too obscure for most people to manage. But you've got people blaming capitalism for the most egregious overreach of governments into the economy in generations, maybe in the whole of human history. And you and I are sitting here with a front row seat. So is it a general strike that's shaping up? Is it possible that we could see, you know, the, the, the growing friction between the government and the people come to a head in this way? I mean, I don't, I don't like the disruption. My wife is flying this weekend. I'm flying next weekend. This could get dicey, <clears throat> but I'm willing to suffer some inconvenience, especially for the sake of pushing back against those who seem so determined to bend us to their will. Check out Jeffrey Tucker's article in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Well, I've got another gem for you here from Paul Rosenberg. I'm going to share that in just a moment. I want to give a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah, at 619 South Bluff Street. You can call Heather at 435-703-4522 if you are anywhere within the state of Utah. Heather Turner's team at Patriot Home Mortgage is there to help you get the mortgage that you need quickly because Heather's been in the business for decades. She understands exactly what the lenders need. She understands what you need and can get you what you're looking for from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages. Her NMLS ID is 715-386 and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I've become a big fan of Paul Rosenberg over the years. And uh, this is this is an essay that he published yesterday. And he actually published this with a little bit of an addendum saying, look, I'm not trying to call anybody out here. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. But I feel very strongly like I need to say something. And so he did. And, and this could make some people uncomfortable because... It starts with the question of, you know, would you have stood up for the Jews as they were being marginalized and persecuted back in 1938? And Paul Rosenberg says the answer to that question can be found in whether or not you are standing up for the unvaccinated today. Because persecution is being normalized and those who wouldn't stand up for the persecuted today likely wouldn't have done it back in 1938 either. He says, I'm not telling you whether I've had the jab or not because it doesn't matter. But he says, what I am telling you is that a woman in Denver is about to die because the medical establishment won't let her have a surgery simply and only because she hasn't had their shot. Now, he says, bear in mind that Denver hospitals have seen thousands of COVID patients over nearly two years. This isn't only persecution, but he says this is willfully causing a death. The unvaxxed, meaning people making a personal medical decision, are the subjects of executive orders from the President of the United States, among many other rulers. They are to be fired from their jobs or their employers will face heavy fines. And many have been fired. The unvaxxed are forbidden by the executive orders of local potentates from entering private businesses. The unvaxxed are being called stupid on CNN and other respected news outlets. These same people are calling for them to be shamed and worse. Many of their listeners are pleased if an anti-vax advocate gets sick and dies. Some will even gloat over it. Many have expressed their wishes for such deaths. Paul Rosenberg says the unvaxxed have been silenced by Google, Facebook, and Twitter, losing the ability to speak their minds in the public square. Civil libertarians have gone silent in the face of this open, flagrant, and massive censorship. He says outrage against the unvaxxed has been stoked relentlessly by the most powerful outlets and services that exist or have ever existed. He says millions of otherwise normal people have become so committed to not letting the other side win that they wish pain and suffering on the unvaxxed. All of this and more simply because the unvaxxed have made a personal medical choice and stuck with it. Now the powerful of almost every type are openly persecuting the unvaxxed. And Paul Rosenberg says that means that you and I must defend them. He says, if you're afraid, suck it up, 
Take whatever blows you must. If you fear people will call you a hypocrite, toughen up and let them. Because he says, whether or not you agree with the choices made by the unvaxxed, you must defend them as fellow human beings. He says, if the unvaxxed aren't allowed to make their own free choices, then all the righteous stories we told ourselves about tolerance, free speech, my body, my choice, and the glories of democracy were simply self-flattering BS. This is the moment when those stories live or die. The unvaxxed are being publicly shamed, hated, derided, fired from their jobs, denied medical care, and more. And the most powerful people in the world are driving it all furiously. He says, if this isn't a persecution, then neither were the inquisitions. Paul Rosenberg says, this is the time when all good people must stand up for the persecuted. And if you won't do it now, you wouldn't have done it in 1938. This is probably the most direct thing I've seen from Paul Rosenberg, and I've been reading his stuff for years. But I agree with him. This is the test of how well you and I understand freedom. Are you willing to stand up for people, even if you may disagree with them? Don't get caught up in the two minutes hate. This is where we get to find out what we're each made of. All right, one other article here, and this is one from uh, from Kent McManigal, kind of a springboarding from Paul Rosenberg's commentaries. Uh, one of the great failures of collectivism is that it treats all of us like mere objects instead of respecting our remarkable individuality. Kent McManigal says the best survival strategy for a society, a civilization, or a species is to be willing to let people try different things. He says, get out of their way, even when you believe their choice will lead to certain doom. The only legitimate limit is when an action would violate the life, liberty, or property of another. Now, he's talking about improvable ways, not just, well, they might get somebody sick. You've got to be able to show how this person specifically poses a threat. <clears throat> he says, in that case, the intended victim has the right to stop the violator, but otherwise... You should be stepping aside. Every choice is a fork in the road. You can't see what's ahead along either path. You may strongly believe one thing is. uh, Others may believe just as strongly something else is. But it's wisest just to let everyone choose their own path. Now again, remember, he's talking about choose their own path so long as it doesn't violate the rights or the property of another person. Now, he says that fork in the road that we're standing at often has more than two options. No expert can know which is the best path. In fact, what would be trouble for some might be perfect for you. But Kent McManigal says, don't let political authorities dictate your choice. Yes, you may choose poorly. Others will make a different choice that works out well. But the more free we are to choose, the better our species will fare. So let some get vaccinated, let others decline to do so, let some wear masks, let others breathe free. Let some people use Bitcoin, let others trade in precious metals, let others trust government fiat money, while others diversify. Let some people work with solar energy, let others provide petroleum, and let others develop Generation 4 nuclear energy. Let those who embrace risk emigrate to Mars, and let others stay on Earth. The more variety in the paths taken, the better off we'll all be. 
And Kent McManigal, Kent McManigal says, because one size does not fit all. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Let people choose what they believe is the best path, even when you're sure they're wrong. Feel free to give them your reasons and then step away and don't force them to do what you believe is best. Because the truth of the matter is you could be wrong. I could be wrong. It's not good to make everyone do the exact same thing. This is why government legislation is such a bad idea for humanity as a whole. It limits options. It forces everyone down a funnel, which might lead to a really bad outcome. Even if it allows a couple of choices, those choices are artificially limited to the ones that politicians like. And so Kent McManigal asks, do you trust politicians to run your life? I don't. Just as I don't trust myself to run your life. You know, it sounds pretty easy, right? I mean, to, to listen to it, it's like, well, it's really not that hard. And, you know, you can, you can make this work. But the truth is, sometimes that's really tough to let other people make choices that you may not agree with. Peaceful choices, nonetheless, but choices with which you don't agree. And I think at some point, if you're trying to get your mind around it, or, or at least get the direction, well, what, what is the right way to go here? You've got to come to the question of where would I have the moral authority to interfere in your life, especially to exert force upon you and to make you do something. I kind of like the old rule of thumb that a friend of mine used to say, and that is, you know, when, when you think about a particular law or a policy, you've got to ask yourself, would I be willing to kill another person in order to enforce this law? If it prohibits a particular act, would I be justified in taking a person's life in order to stop them from doing that act? And there are some things, of course, we would say, yes, absolutely, you know, harming a child or something like that. You better believe we would step right in and be justified. But for a lot of it, it comes down to just personal preference. I don't like what you're doing, and I want to make you do what I want you to do. And when you harness government for that power, I'm sorry, You are not being a good person. You're not being righteous. You're simply exerting coercion, and that's not a good thing. Thanks again for joining us today. Our program brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. This is The Brian Hyde Show.